Uh, welcome, everybody, to uh, today's lunchtime lecture. Alan Thompson is my name. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Brain Sciences, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Matteo Carandini, who's going to give us a lecture today. I'll tell you a little bit about Matteo. He um, studied in Rome and did his PhD in New York, finishing in 1996. He then traveled the world. He went to Chicago, back to New York, San Francisco, Zurich, and then he came to London in 2007 as GSK Fight for Sight Professor of Visual Neuroscience. He's a welcome senior investigator and he holds many, many uh, grants, including a Welcome Strategic Award. He's published very widely and has many highly cited papers. We're not meant to talk about impact anymore, so I'm never going to use that word. But last year he had papers in Neuron Nature and Science, which sound pretty pretty good to me. Um, he's a, a true collaborator uh, within UCL nationally and, and internationally and within UCL he works very closely with uh, Kenneth Harris and, and Michael Hauser. And as you'll hear, and I'm not going to say very much more, he's been responsible for establishing exciting international initiatives, notably the International Brain Laboratory and the NeuroPixels Consortium. So Matteo is a wonderful lecturer. Uh, he conveys energy, enthusiasm, and excitement. So I think we're in for a treat. I will hopefully stop him at about quarter to us. We've got time for questions, but I can't guarantee I can do that. So Matteo, over to you. Thank you very much. Let me start uh, with my title, which is Recording from Myriad Neurons to Understand Behavior. And um, Recording and neurons are two words that I will define in, in the talk, but let's talk about myriad for a moment. Myriad means a lot, and it means a lot in English, French, Spanish, Italian, probably other languages too. Um, not German, apparently. Uh, but in ancient Greek, it means something very specific. It means 10,000. And in fact, we will see that um, that number will be very useful in this uh, lecture. And in fact, I'm told that the, in Greek, even today, to say one million, you say a hundred myriad. So that's about myriad. And now, how about behavior? Um, by behavior, I'm going to be meaning something rather specific, which is uh, how we make decisions, how the brain makes decisions. Now, decisions can be momentous, such as, um, should I take a job at UCL, or should I ask for a job at UCL? Uh, should I marry someone? Should I share my lab with a complete stranger, which I did? Um, uh, or it could be also something very, very basic, uh, very simple, which we do all the time. How do I cross the street? Is that a microphone? Um, and, uh, or for you, where, where do I sit? What do I wear this morning? And I'm going to go even more, even simpler than that, and think about this kind of decisions, which are decisions that we make based on what we see. Uh, which bramble should I pick? Um, and then where, how should I reach to grab it? And, um, and when I taste it, does it taste good? Was it a good idea? Okay, and, and so these are, you, you'll think, well, eh, I never go. Uh, last time I, I went for brambles was, you know, 20 years ago. But, you know, you probably do this kind of thing more often. And, uh, and so we make decisions of this kind, perceptual decisions, visually based decisions all the time. So uh, neuroscience has done lots of progress in understanding how we do this kind of thing choose which apple we want, reach for it, etc. And, and the basic idea of how we do it is described uh, in textbooks um, according to a division in processes. For example, you could imagine that we have a whole visual system that will process images, um, and, and we do indeed, and then there will be a part of the brain that makes decisions. That's the bramble I want. 
um, or uh, that's the apple I want in the store, or, or that's where I'll cross. And then there'll be parts of the brain that um, will be devoted to moving our body, you know, I'll move my arm, and parts of the brain that will process the outcome. Was that bramble good or not? Which will inform my decisions in the future. And the books are literally organized either according to processes like this, or according to chapters, which then end up being about processes. So there'll be a chapter on motor cortex, which is around here. And that chapter will be about moving your body. So um, if you put a human in an fMRI scanner, a functional magnetic resonance scanner, which many of you have been in for if you had like a broken bone or things like this, um, um, you can actually image their brain while it's active. And you find that by and large, the description given by the textbook is correct. And in fact, this kind of data informs the textbook and vice versa. So if you go look at the parts of the brain in a human uh, that are active, particularly active when somebody is looking at images, it is indeed back here, um, and which is where we have the visual cortex. If you go look at parts that are particularly active when somebody makes a decision, uh, it is indeed up here and so on. Uh, this is the activation that you see in this third slide, in third panel, is the activation that you get when somebody moves one arm, okay? It's in motor cortex. And, and, and the activation that you see in the fourth one is the activation that you would get when somebody processes a reward, in this case, a positive reward, a positive outcome. So this gives the appealing impression that the brain is organized by um, you know, regions and that you need to, and you, could, you should describe their, its activity in terms of regions. Uh, now, it's, this can also be a fallacy. Imagine if you wanted to describe the political views of British people based on parties. That'd be hard these days, right? Uh, there's, there's many aspects in which they, the, the, the political views don't really are divided by parties. And so also if you go now look at these little specks, these red dots in, in these images, those are called voxels, and each of them contains about 100,000 neurons. In there, um, you know, there could be neurons that do all sorts of things that are different from their neighbors, or you could imagine that some processes, such as making a decision, may not be served by a particular chunk of brain, but may be more distributed, okay? Um, so, now, I mentioned the word neurons, and so many of you will have seen them or heard about them. Uh, they are tiny things. They're about 10 microns wide, and our brain has about 86 billion of them, which I don't know how many myriads that is, but we could figure that out. And, um, and so they're tiny. They're about 10 microns. Roughly speaking, a human hair is 50 microns. So roughly speaking, they're a fifth of a hair. Actually, hair width changes enormously, depending whether you're blonde or dark haired. But anyway, um, so it's, think about it as about a fifth of a, of a hair, and so hair width. And so we need to, to understand how, we, you know, how behavior arises. We need to record from them and measure their activity. Now, their activity is electrical. Uh, in fact, electricity was first discovered uh, in, in, in the body. Um, and, um, and their activity is electrical, and they, they signal to each other through these cables by firing what's called uh, action potentials, or rather, more commonly, spikes. And if you were to listen to the spikes, they go like, tuk, 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 tuk. they're like, fire, they're like, this kind of thing, okay? They're just all or none events. So 
Um, so what we want to do is record the electrical activity of these neurons, and luckily uh, there, there are means to do that. And uh, we, we don't want to do that necessarily in a human. We can record electrically by inserting electrodes in a human, only if the human is undergoing surgery, for example. But otherwise, we do all of our work, or practically all of our work, in mice. Uh, that's the mouse brain to scale human mouse. Um, smaller, but still, uh, about 17 million neurons. And by the way, we treat our mice way, way better than at the entrance of this lecture theater where there is a mouse trap. Um, and so this, the kind of thing that we do to mice in our kitchen would, is a billion times, I don't know how many myriad times, more dangerous than what we do in the lab. Our mice don't feel any pain and they just have these incredibly thin uh, probes inserted in their brain. So. Um, how do we record from these uh, millions or thousands or, 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 or you know, little tiny neurons? We do that by, as I said, their activity is electrical. And so we do that, we record from them by inserting electrodes that have very many recording sites. Okay? This would be the recording site that we record from about these neurons. This recording site will probably pick up the activity of these neurons. And um, and vice versa, the, acti the activity of this neuron will be probably picked up by this site, this site, this site, and this site. So you can imagine that you could decipher. You, you get these electrical events and you can figure out, well, if I got them in these four, they probably come from a neuron that is near and over there and so on. So this is a technique that is super well established, um, but um, it only as you can see from this image, it can only tell you about the activity of, say, a few tens of neurons at most. Uh, I don't know how many are there in this mock-up. So we need to improve on it. So what I will do today is tell you about three efforts that, um, uh, that, that I've worked in. And in most of them, I've played a secondary role. I'm, don't, don't come out of this lecture thinking that I am the one who figured out all these three things. And the three things are, the three questions that I'm going to address are, how can we record the activity of thousands of neurons across the brain? Uh, how can we probe decision-making behavior in mice? Uh, because uh, you cannot tell a mouse, please go pick the bramble you prefer. You need to actually teach it how to do it. And um, how does the activity of neurons generate the decisions? And this is a massively important question in all of neuroscience. So let's see what kind of progress we can make in this ambitious goal in the next 20 minutes or so. So we'll start with how can we record from thousands of neurons across the brain? And now I'd like to give you uh, what will look like a very dry and boring history of electrodes in um, our um, you know, uh, last century and this century. Electrodes were, um, the, the microelectrode was invented in 1953 by Horace Barlow and Levick, or other people also around that time. Uh, Barlow in, was in California at the time. And in 1959, which is around here, uh, David Hubel came up with that electrode. And David Hubel then later went on to get a Nobel Prize thanks to this electrode. And, and, um, and actually, all of these dots are different electrodes and improvements on the electro technology that were introduced. So we are the 1950s, and over here we are 2020. And each dot is an improvement in technology. This is uh, the tetrode, which was introduced by John O'Keefe here at UCL, and he also got a Nobel Prize thanks to the discoveries made with these kind of electrodes. So, um, so what does an electrode look like? In the 1950s, it looked like a, a metal wire, maybe five microns or 10 microns wide, uh, surrounded by lacquer, if I'm pronouncing this word correctly, uh, which is a, you know, 
lacquer. Uh, and, uh, and at the very, very tip of it, the metal sticks out so it can record. And everywhere else you cannot pick up electrical activity because it's covered by lacquer. So this was the 1950s. Over, all the way to 2015, electrodes started looking like this. Made of silicon, lots of sites. And the thing that has been improving over time is the number of recording sites per shank. And by shank, I mean the, the thing that you put in the brain. Okay? Okay. So, um, so what the, you can see here that there is a limiting factor to these electrodes, which is how, with, how wide the wires are. See, here there are three sites and there are three wires coming out. As you keep on going up, most of the shank is made of wires. As you, when you get to the top, it's all wires, basically. So this electrode has about 55 sites. If you wanted to add more sites, you would need to add wires, and the electrode would get wider and wider. That electrode is already a quarter of a millimeter wide. I'm not sure I would want something like this in my brain, okay? Certainly nothing larger than this. So this was a limiting factor in, in, in electrode fabrication, and so this is just repeating the sizes. And so what we wanted to do, what, 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 what would be ideal, and this is what we ended up doing thanks to uh, the ideas of Tim Harris at Janelia Research Farm, Research Institute in, in, um, in the US, is to try to bridge the gap between this kind of width of wires and the normal wires that are in today's electronic chips. Uh, which are in generally 10 nanometers or even less now. So you're probably all carrying a mobile phone. Your mobile phone has chips, and the chips in there have wires that are down to 5 nanometers today, I would think. So to, we want to try to push the technology from 1.5 micrometer wires to, in this direction. And to do that, a very large um, consortium um, of scientists and engineers was formed. So the, the leader in this was Howard Hughes Medical Institute, that's the Janelia Research Center that I mentioned, and then um, they teamed up with UCL and Allen Institute of Brain Science, and UCL got funding from the Gatsby Foundation and from Wellcome Trust, which is next door. Um, and, um, and, they were, and why did we need funding? From, and by the way, I was not the leader of this at UCL, the leader of this effort at UCL was John O'Keefe. Uh, why did we need funding for this? Why didn't the semiconductor industry do this by themselves? Uh, the reason is that they sell uh, uh, literally billions of these, uh, but these kind of electrodes would serve only maybe thousands of labs. So there's no incentive for them to do this. I bet they will jump in when this technology e evolves and goes on to humans for medical purposes, um, but up to now there's no interest in them. And so the brilliance of uh, um, um, uh, Tim Harris at Howard Hughes Medical Institute is that he teamed up with a company, with a research company called IMEC, whose day job is to make these chips. This is what they earn their living from. They are a nonprofit and they, they are always in charge of the next generation. And so for them, this was absurd. They looked at it and laughed, okay? Um, and they said, we can do much better. And they did much better. This is what they produced. They produced the NeuroPixels probe, um, which, which I'll describe in a second, and which was the result of a, a very tight collaboration between neuroscientists who tested various prototypes and engineers who produced them. So the NeuroPixels probe looks like this. This is a chip that, over here that is about one centimeter, but now it's getting even smaller. And uh, this is a shank that is one centimeter long and has a thousand recording sites. So it sits up here. Um, it's kind of an outlier in this curve, and, uh, and as you can see, it's got, you know, a thousand recording sites, they're tightly spaced, and the wires are 0.2 microns in size. They're not as thin as the ones in, the, in a chip, and the reason is that uh, these things get very hot, 
I'm told that one of the reasons why we carry larger and larger mobile phones in our pockets is that this way they dissipate heat, not because we like to have such large screens. Um, and so, um, and we didn't want the brain to get too hot, but it's possible that we can push the, the wire, uh, wires to become thinner. Now, the production of this kind of electrodes follows the same uh, technology as the production of the chips. They're produced in these large sheets, and I hope you can see that this rectangle here is the same thing as this rectangle here. And this thin shank that comes out is the same thing as this thin shank here. Yeah? Okay. So, and, and just to give you an idea of what it looks like, if you hold one in your hands, it looks like that. Um, that's the glove and the fingers of a person, by the way. The first time I looked at the picture, I didn't realize that. Is it obvious? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so, um, and so, and so out of this probe comes a signal that is already digitized, amplified and digitized. So you literally do not need a laboratory to record from the brain anymore. Um, and I, I believe this is going to be a great democratizer. It is sold, each probe is sold at about a thousand euros, which is the cost price. And, um, and, by having this, you can throw away equipment that used to cost 100,000 just to record from this many channels. Actually, nothing could record from this many channels before. Okay, so once you have these, you might be actually not really into technology. In that case, I'm sorry, but I'm done with technology. Let's get back to brains. And so what can you do now if you have this kind of um, technology in your hands? You can do this. You can record from, for example, 750 neurons at once. And before I explain what's in here, let me just point out that I received my PhD in 96 or 97, and my entire PhD was about 200 neurons. This is a one-hour recording that gave 750 neurons, okay, compared to five years of my PhD. And so um, this gives you, uh, the, makes you realize that this was a big game changer. And so what am I showing? First of all, um, there was a mouse and there, were, and there were two electrodes where two of these neuropixels probe were inserted, one more anterior, one more posterior. And if you take a section through the brain of the mouse, this is the trajectory that the first probe took. This is the trajectory that the second probe took. Now, from the first probe, we recorded from almost 400 neurons. And you can see that the probe first went through something called motocortex and then went through something called striatum. And uh, sorry, the probe didn't move, by the way. The probe is fixed and there are sites all along it, okay? Um, and these recording sites picked up the activity of lots of neurons and each neuron is given a color, which obviously is going to be really hard to distinguish from where you're sitting. And um, each dot is a spike. So you can think of this as a giant orchestra. Um, and we were recording its activity at, uh, in real time. By the way, this is happening in your brain right now. There are 96 billion neurons, many of them asleep probably now because you're bored. But, uh, and they are going each with its own voice and trying to talk to the others and trying to grab its attention. Um, so um, while we were recording from this more anterior set of regions, we were also recording from this more posterior one. And we, had, we were recording from hundreds of neurons in the visual cortex, in the hippocampus, in the thalamus. And, the, and if you don't know the meaning of these words, don't worry. They're just brain regions, illustrious brain regions that do lots of important things. Okay, so we have addressed the first issue, which is um, how can we record from lots of neurons? And the answer is through neuropixels probes that can record from thousands of neurons across the brain. Let's get to the second question, which is how can we probe decision-making behavior in mice? And so to, to, uh, to measure behavior in mice, you need to train them to do something. And in, this, and in our case, we want it to be something that is very well controlled. And ideally, something where 
you don't always get the same response. So my favorite example here is the amber light or yellow light for those who watch this video from America. You, you're driving and there is, the light turns yellow. 50-50, you'll go or stop, depending on how far along you are, how much in a rush you are, um, what, you know, what, what this particular neuron did. It's an ambiguous signal, right? Um, I have a friend over there who would definitely run through it. Um, and, um, and so this is a visual signal that we interpret differently in different trials. And so you can imagine, let's try to do something like this for a mouse. And here is what we built. It's a setup in which, which is a bit dark in this uh, screen. So the mouse is, uh, is lying here comfortably. The tail is dangling here. By the way, there is no mouse in this picture. If you don't see one, don't, don't be surprised. Um, the, the tail dangles here. And the front paws are on a little wheel that is here. Think of it as a steering wheel, okay? That, that's my analogy with um, my friend going through yellow lights. Um, and, um, and the mouse is surrounded by three screens. And the screens are not transparent as they appear here, uh, but they are rather iPad screens. And, and they're all around the mouse because the mouse has eyes to its sides and the, the mouse sees 270 degrees in, in this dimension, the horizontal dimension. And now imagine unwrapping, uh, oh, and, and by the way, the mouse can turn the wheel and get a, 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 a liquid, um, a, a sweet water as a reward, which they love if they do the right thing. And what is the right thing? Well, if a stimulus appears on the left screen, they need to turn their arms to move it physically, basically, virtually, from the left to the center. And if it's on the right screen, they need to move it virtually to the center. And if it's nowhere, they will receive a reward for not moving. Now, this um, will feel like a very strange task because where the stimulus is on the left, you need to move your arms to the right. But I will now demonstrate that it's a very natural one. Say that I'm interested in my friend over there uh, with the orange um, jumper. I am a mouse, okay, I'm like this, and I'm interested in looking there, so I will go like this. So I have m focused on something to my left by moving my arms to the right, and in doing so, he has moved to the center of my vision, which is exactly what is happening in this task. Have I just made it more complicated? <laughs> anyway, when we tried to teach mice to do the opposite, it didn't work. So this is possibly a very natural movement that you would do to, to look at things. And so uh, mice get really, 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 really good at this, essentially perfect. And they will do, say, 600 trials in one in a couple of hours and uh, get lots of liquid that they have sweet uh, water, which they like. And they'll get close to perfection. So what is perfection? When, when there's lots of contrast, so lots of black and white, uh, on the left, they almost 100% of the times choose left. When there's lots of contrast on the right, they almost 100% of the times when go right. But, and, and when there's lots of contrast on the left, they never go right. For, and then it's interesting to see what they do when there's very little contrast or where there's no contrast at all, there's no stimulus. When there's no stimulus, they very often not move at all, which is great, that's exactly what we want them to do. But sometimes they hold back from moving, and so that's a miss. A missed, we call it a missed trial because the animal missed the stimulus and therefore missed the chance to get a reward. For example, for stimuli on the left like this, the mouse should have chosen left, shouldn't have, it shouldn't have chosen a no-go. But this happens maybe you know, 10, 20% of the times. So there's lots of mistakes and lots of uh, correct answers and lots of different answers to the same stimulus, which is what we really need to understand how the decisions are made. Just to drive this point home, when you have this kind of stimulus here, you get a 50-50 chance that the animal will choose left or not. And this is extremely useful to study decision making.
So while the mouse is making this, we can actually record from the brain. And first I'll show you uh, what's happening at the wide level on the, on the brain of the mouse. So this, what you see up here, is a camera looking at the brain of the mouse. The brain of the mouse, has, the skull has been made transparent, you cannot see that. And through that, you would see, if you could see through that, you would see something that looks like this. And um, the mouse is doing its task and then licking happily when it gets a reward, turning the wheel, licking, and so on. And while this is happening, uh, we can image through a technique that I will not explain. It's called wide field imaging. It's, it's not particularly relevant here. Um, but similar to functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, in spirit. Um, and we can see that there's lots of activity in various um, regions of the cortex, which is the part of the brain that is on the top of the brain. Um, and, you know, we can work out what regions light up when the stimulus comes up, which is down here, the visual cortex back here, and then the motor cortex and frontal cortex and so on. Now, to understand this talk, by the way, you do not need to know brain regions. Um, but you can see that now this is a perfect candidate for trying to understand the way the neurons inside the brain, not just on the surface, um, tell the mouse what to do and evaluate the results and so on. So we have now covered the second point of my lecture, which is we have a task that measures decision-making behavior in mice. And it's very rigorous. The brain doesn't move. We know where the eyes are looking. We know exactly what the mouse is seeing. And so now we can marry the first two of these techniques, neuropixels recordings and this task, and answer this question. How does the activity of neurons generate the behavior? Okay, so um, we now get to this part, which is we, we inserted lots of neuropixels probes in the brain of 10 mice, generally two probes at a time. Uh, those are the numbers. There were 10 mice, each mouse is a color, um, and there were uh, 39 sessions and 92 probe insertions, and this video stopped, and I do not dare to start it. Um, well, let's go back and start it again. Okay, and you can see that all of our probes were on the left hemisphere, and you can see that we didn't really cover the whole brain. We didn't cover the olfactory bulb, Probably olfaction doesn't play a big role. We stayed out of the cerebellum. Um, sorry, going back and forward again. And we didn't really go into auditory parts, you know, but it's a pretty good coverage. And in fact, in doing these recordings, uh, we recorded from 30,000 neurons in 42 brain regions. And at this point, you know how many myriads that is. That's three myriads. And um, this has never been done, this kind of thing. And uh, it allowed us to ask what each of these brain regions do. And in fact, what's interesting is, you see all these brain regions, they each have an acronym. I don't know many of these acronyms and you don't have to worry about them. But the point is, we ended up recording from lots of places that we didn't think we were interested in. Um, just because the probe goes through, by the way, the probe is one centimeter long and the mouse brain is less than one centimeter. So we're not even putting the whole probe in. And, um, and in doing so, we discovered that there were lots of interesting places that we, I actually personally didn't know, didn't know anything about. And there, you know, one of them that is, ended up being very useful, as you'll see, is the subiculum, which is here. And I did know about that one. But one that is, turns out to be fascinating is called zona inserta. Uh, shall I translate zona inserta? Uncertain zone. And so I actually had not heard about it, I'm sorry. You probably, my, my dean had heard about the zona inserta. 
excellent. Uh, but I had not, and it turns out to be one of the most fascinating places. Um, and so, and that's thanks, so just to reiterate, the normal way to do neuroscience would have been to say, I think that this piece of cortex is interesting, this one here, parietal cortex, let me stick some electrodes there, let me record from a few tens of neurons there, and let's find out what they do. Now, this is completely different. This is, let's record from 30,000 neurons all across the brain and see what they do. So now, 30,000 neurons is too many to show you individually, so I'm going to show you three of them. Apologies. And these three, though, show some important principles. And you will see lots of dots now, and these dots, each dot is a spike that the neuron made. So let's start with the first neuron. This neuron lived in the area PM of the visual cortex of a mouse, and um, this neuron, as you might expect, given that it's in the visual cortex, um, loves visual stimuli. So when the stimulus comes up, it fires, but only if the stimulus is on the right side. Remember, we're recording from the left side. That's called the contralateral side. If the stimulus is on the ipsilateral side, it doesn't fire, which makes sense because the left cortex looks at the right side, the right cortex looks at the left side, so it's all good. And so even when the animal missed the stimulus, the neuron fired happily after a stimulus showed up, but you also notice something bizarre, which is when the animal moved, which are these red dots, the black dots, um, the neuron fired after the movement, regardless of whether there was a stimulus or not. So this is a neuron that cares for the stimulus being present. It will certainly be driven by the stimulus, but it also responds after the animal has moved. Now let's go to our second example neuron. That's the neuron in zona inserta. Um, and so by the way, the first kind of thing is extremely common. This one is much rarer. And uh, this is a neuron that fires before movements in the, so movements that bring the contralateral stimulus, the right stimulus into the center, but do not, doesn't fire at all before the opposite movements and is basically quiet following the presentations of visual stimuli, even when they're missed. So this is a neuron that tells you in advance what the mouse is going to do. It smells of decision, we'll call that choice by the way. Um, and my third example is a neuron that looks very motor. This neuron basically simply fires whether the animal is moving to the left or to the right a little bit before the movement. Uh, you can certainly predict whether the animal is going to move or not by recording from this neuron, but the neuron doesn't care if it's a movement to the left or to the right. Okay, so having seen these three examples, let's look at where they are, these kind of neurons in the brain. The first kind of neuron, which was in PM, which is somewhere, uh, maybe there's a dot. Yes, that neuron that I showed you is here. Um, and this, this kind of neuron responds to vision and can be very common. For example, in primary visual cortex, 30% of the neurons respond that way. And the neurons that we found that do this are in some regions of the brain that were traditionally thought to be in the classical visual pathway, so it's all good. Now let's look at the neurons that encoded choice. These neurons showed up in very few places and were very rare. At most, 6% of them in zona inserta. In other places, tiny percentages, 1% or 2% of the neurons, you would never pick those up with functional magnetic resonance imaging. And um, quite interestingly, some of the neurons uh, could appear, the neurons could care for movements to the left or to the right, but down here in what's called the midbrain, they rigorously preferred movements to the left, meaning choosing the opposite stimulus. 
And finally, basically everywhere in the brain, 60% of the neurons that had anything to do with activation during the task were active during movement. Uh, and so, by the way, this, we define here action as moving the wheel, but regardless of left or right, and choice as moving left versus moving right, okay? And these were everywhere, most of them, lots of them in this region called anterior pre-optic pre uh, pretectum. Um, and, um, and this was extraordinarily common. Now this, the fact that 60% of the neurons are active during movement is interesting for two reasons, in my opinion. One, that it means that the signals about body movement are broadcast throughout the brain. And two, it might provide an explanation for one fact that might otherwise be mysterious. Everybody who has recorded from neurons during a task has always been able to write a paper. And if you think about it, that shouldn't be that easy, right? You might be in the completely wrong part of the brain relative to the behavior you're studying, in which case you might not be able to write a scientific paper about it. But you, everybody's been able to write a paper. And my thinking is because every correlate of behavior is motor, and motor, motor actions have correlates throughout the brain, okay? Which explains the success of neuroscience for the last 100 years. And so, um, and so to, to, to tell you where this is in the grand scheme of things, um, first of all, we replicate what the textbook says largely, that vision engages the neurons in the regions that are in the classical visual pathway. But then from here on, we just get surprises one after the other. The fact that neurons selective for choice are so rare and distributed is really not what the textbook says. By the way, I should say it's possible that there is a hotspot where tons of neurons care for this, make decisions, and we just missed it, okay? So I can't really, but, but, uh, but, but this was quite surprising, and also this fact was very surprising. All right, so now I have two slides. One is going to investigate this business of choice and tell you a little more about it, and finally I'll get into one final matter called engagement, which I hope you still have. You still engaged? Okay, so let's talk about choice. So let's focus on these neurons, or these regions, okay? And so one of the things you may wonder is, could it be that zona inserta tells the rest of the brain what to do, right? That we're all slaves to zona inserta, which would make a lot of sense to me. But, <laughs> but and so how would we measure that? One thing that we can do with recordings from the neurons is we can see, do some neurons fire before others? Right? If, if the neurons in zona inserta made decisions before choices before neurons elsewhere, we would say, aha, zona inserta is the site of decision making, even though only 6% of the neurons were related to decisions there. And so we asked this question, and we asked it in a slightly more mathematical way, which is, if I look at the neurons in a certain region, can I decode what the animal is going to do? Can I predict what the animal is going to do in advance? And how far in advance can I predict it? Obviously, after the movement, any part of the brain will do the job, but before the movement. And it turns out that we don't see any difference between brain regions. So this is, these are three curves that show us, show you our ability to predict movement to the left or to the right in advance of the movement. Obviously, at the time of the movement, we do perfection, which is one. And we don't see any difference between the neurons in the midbrain, which are shown in red here, the neurons in the caudate putamen, which is this enormous big thing here, and the neurons in the forebrain, which are here. They all seem to be activated at the same time, and therefore there's some kind of 
mutual, we think that this is, uh, uh, indicates some kind of mutual connection that makes it so that together they form a decision. And this is probably too involved for this late in the talk, I apologize, but it gives you an idea for the kind of thinking that we have, which is very much in, consistent, by the way, with lots of other studies, um, which indicates that maybe in the frontal cortex and in the basal ganglia, which is this caudiputamen thing here, um, there is a smattering of neurons. Some of them are selected for left choices, some of them are selected for right choices, orange and blue. By the time you get to the midbrain, you have neurons that are only selected for left choices or on the other side, right choices. And we think that these two sides of the brain compete with each other about what to do. I want to go left, no, I want to go right, and they're fighting, whereas these bits up here are collaborating. Um, the frontal cortices are collaborating. But it's unclear whether this, you know, we would need to do more work to define this. Now let's get to my final point, which is about engagement. Some of you at this point are tuned out, understandably. Some of you are highly engaged, and you're fascinated. What am I going to say next? And uh, if I could record from the brain, I could actually tell who of you is engaged and who's tuned out. And this is a discovery we made by, by mistake almost. It's not something we were looking for. And we discovered that before the stimulus even comes up, there are tiny but extremely um, statistically significant, um, you know, meaningful uh, differences in the activity of various brain regions. So the region, the neurons in the cortex are invariably um, less active if you're engaged than if you're disengaged. Well, you being a mouse, I don't know about you, you. And the neurons instead in these red regions, uh, the opposite, they fire more if the, if the animal is engaged. And we can tell if the animal is engaged even before the stimulus comes up, and we know if the animal is going to move or not, because remember, it could also make a miss choice, which is to not move. In fact, we can predict it really well. If we look at how similar is the activity in the brain to this picture, you know, where high means very similar to this picture, and negative means very, very different from this picture. The, similar, the more similar the activity of the brain is to that picture, the higher the probability that the mouse will actually move. So this is something that is not in agreement or in disagreement with the textbook. It wasn't even mentioned in the textbook. And this is the kind of thing that we can do with this technology. And, um, and you can do it by measuring spikes, and it would be harder to do with other methods. So now let's summarize where we have been. We talked about uh, these new probes called NeuroPixels. And, and as I said, my role there has been secondary. I, I'm, I play a bigger role in the uh, next generation of probes that I hope to be telling you about some other time. Um, and the, uh, these probes record from thousands of neurons across the brain. I told you about a task that measures decision-making behavior in mice. And then I talked about brain-wide networks of neurons that support vision, decision, action, and engagement. I hope you're still engaged. And, um, and so who did this work? Well, I think the beautiful thing is that this work was basically done by one lab and one person within the lab. And so this is uh, the, the three people who worked, Kenneth Harris, with whom I share the lab, Nick Steinmetz, who did all the recordings, at the same time as he was debugging the NeuroPixels probes because they were being... Um, developed at the same time. And Peter Zatkahas was a PhD student who, um, uh, so uh, now Nick has his own lab at the University of Washington and Peter is a postdoc in Oxford. And Kenneth hasn't abandoned me yet. Um, and, um, and so Nick recorded from 30,000 neurons. Pip, who's somewhere there, 
has recorded from 12,000 neurons just you know, in his spare time. This is the new way of doing things. Um, I know it was no effort, Pip. Um, and so uh, this is the new way of doing things. And so we think if one lab could do three myriad neurons, what can 10 or 20 labs together do? And so that's what we're, we're testing with the International Brain Laboratory, which is a consortium of 21 labs, about 10 experimental and 10 um, theoretical, which leaves one out and I will not discuss. Um, and, um, and, um, and so... The International Brain Laboratory tries to use this, or aims to use this technology and this approach to go past the old way of doing science, which, which is that each lab looks at their own brain region, acquire their own data, write their own paper, and which is still something that will give us discoveries, but is perhaps something that we can also try to look for alternatives to. And now the reason why we can do all this is twofold. First is that we have uh, Simon's Foundation and Wellcome Trust funding this uh, major effort to the tune of about 25 million pounds to date. Um, and, um, and also this new technology called NeuroPixels. And I think NeuroPixels are going to act as a great de democratizer of um, neuroscience. And we're doing our best to spread it around. And this is a map in my last slide of uh, the labs that we've trained in NeuroPixels uh, technology, actually the brown ones are the ones that we're training in April. Um, and, and, uh, and so you can see they're spread not all over the world, but we're getting there this year. We're getting Argentina, Brazil, and Bangladesh, um, and Italy over here. Um, and so um, hopefully what I told you today will be the norm in a few years. Uh, this is the way neuroscience will be done when you record from neurons. And I think it was wonderful that this was done through collaborations, a collaboration within my lab, uh, which I share, which has you know, been an incredibly fruitful uh, experience, a collaboration in the International Brain Lab, and a collaboration in the NeuroPixels Consortium. So thank you very much. Great. Um, really exciting, engaging presentation. Very, very good. And we also learned that if you want to publish papers, you just need to study neurons. And if you want a Nobel Prize, you actually have to develop an electrode. So they're really important. Yep, that's a take home. So uh, we've got time for a couple of questions. If anybody wants to just raise your hand, we've got some uh, microphones, one here. Uh, thank you so much, Matteo, for, uh, for such an engaging uh, um, explanation of, of breakthroughs in neuroscience. Um, I'm currently studying intuition in strategic project management, and well, after my readings, I found out that it's within the limbic system. So I wonder if you see in a foreseeable future to design an experiment which would uh, uh, evaluate the process of intuitive, intuitive judgment in the brain. Because so what you just mentioned about uh, the choice uh, and the apparent uh, autonomous uh, uh, process within the brain to make decisions is, is pretty innate within uh, beings. Yeah. Uh, so, so intuition I, um, makes me think of, um, I don't know if you, I'm sure you have in mind this, this book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow, 
beautiful book. I strongly recommend it. And so he describes these two systems. I think he calls them systems one and system two. One of which, the first one is very intuitive. Um, it's the kind of skill that you have that you can develop, like if you look at uh, x-rays and you become really good at it, you look at it and you go, yeah, that's a broken bone. And, um, or that's a cancer if you look at MRI, et cetera. And that's, that's an intuitive system that we, we train and then we use very fast. And then there is a more deliberate system that takes time where we actually have to go various steps, maybe using more of our frontal cortex. Now, we can train mice in both kinds of tasks, but there are limits to what we can train mice to do. I, I do think they're very smart. And by the way, they're way closer to us than cats and mice in terms of family, um, in terms of you know, genetics. Um, uh, but they're not as smart as, as humans. And so I think that getting to the kind of very cognitive or very intuitive tasks will take working with humans, uh, ultimately. And I don't know what technology will allow us to do that with this kind of resolution. Certainly nothing I can think of now. Okay, so. Have you noticed any significant brain scarring in mice? Sorry, anything? Any significant brain scarring? Anything significant? Brain scarring, yes, sorry, sorry. Uh, brain scarring, yes. So around the electrode, uh, there is a little bit of gliosis. So glia forms to protect the, the, the brain. And so we do find, we can find the tracks of the electrode by measuring gliosis. But luckily, it's very minor. And one of the things that really helps is that the brain moves up and down, mostly, not sideways. And so if the probe is put vertically, um, essentially the probe is not damaging the brain as the brain moves. And the fact that it, the, the probe has so many sites allows us to follow neurons as they're moving up and down, which is something I didn't mention, but it's actually really, really, really helpful. Okay, so when you record from like myriads of neurons, it allows you to like investigate brain regions that perhaps you weren't even thinking about before. Um, but on the flip side of that, when you're recording from thousands of neurons, you know, practically speaking, um, it may be hard, like really time intensive, like many hours to even go through all that data. So without just like dumping it all on grad students and like hoping for the best, like how do you maybe narrow your focus into, oh, maybe let's You'd never Look at this region. Graduate yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, so, so, so I think that the if you acquire a very large data set of this kind, you can do multiple passes through it. It used to be that if you had a data set in your lab, you would keep hold of it and write a paper about it, and then another one. But now you can actually do a first pass, then and immediately release it to the public. And others, if they want, you're not going to force them. They can look at it. So in this case, if you think about it, the analysis that we did was pretty basic. We took a bunch of neurons, looked at whether they cared for vision, action, choice, and then we averaged them across regions, which is the thing I was telling you we shouldn't do. Um, and so it's a very first order analysis, right? And so I think the, the beauty of these kind of data sets is that they will allow more people in the future to perform further analysis if they want. I'm not gonna dump it on them. Um, so did anyone ever look at the morphological differences for those types of neurons that were responsible for choice, perhaps ah. receptive oh, receptors or? Great, great question. I, we would love to know. The, here, it, it, it's, it's good that you ask this question because it allows me to mention another limitation of electrophysiology, which is it's really hard to know what kind of neurons you're recording from. It's as if you, you, know, you, 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 you go in a stadium and there's lots of people talking and you, and you randomly, have some microphones coming down, 
Yeah, maybe you can tell who's female, who's male from the voice, but that's pretty much it. You'll never be able to tell much more about them. And, and similarly with the electrodes, we might be able to distinguish excitatory from inhibitory neurons. But, you know, once you get to cell types, of which we have hundreds, if not more, uh, optical methods still are superior. And so um, that's a super good question. I would love to know if that 6% of neurons in zona inserta are all of one type. Right, and, and we can't answer that question right now. Great. Matteo, thank you again very much. I think we're going to bring the lecture to a close. Thank you. Thank you.